Well, this is our final sermon in our fall sermon series on John's Gospel, and this is really part one. We will resume in Lent and pick up in the upper room and the cross and the resurrection, which is appropriate for Lent and Easter. And in many ways, the gospel that we have for today in the first part of John's Gospel is kind of the climax before the climax. This is the climax that really points to everything that has been leading up to it. Jesus over and over again has been trying to direct people to the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the one that's come into the world to save the world. And he's trying to reveal himself to people so that they would understand who he is, that he comes to fulfill the role, the prophecies of the Old Testament as the Messiah. So that people would believe in him and trust in the Father and have their lives transformed and give their life to him. And this is the ultimate way that he shows it and demonstrates it as we come to John chapter 11, that he is the resurrection and the life. As he shows in raising Lazarus from the dead. And there's a sense of as John points out at the beginning of his gospel, the very first chapter, the first 14 verses, that this really reveals in John 11 that he is fully God and fully human. Again, the cross and the resurrection will point that out to the ultimate. But this points it out as well, in that we see he is fully God in that he can raise the dead. Because John in the beginning says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that's Jesus, and the Word was God. That Jesus is clearly God. And then you get to verse 14 in chapter 1, and the Word became flesh, that's Jesus. So fast forward to John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's fully God. But at the same time, he weeps. He's fully human. That he is touched by what goes on in our world, in our life. If you look throughout the life of Jesus, you see dimensions of him being fully human. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. We've pointed out some of that in John's gospel already. He's emotional. He gets angry. When he clears the temple, he gets sad like we see here. If you really understand the Gospels, he has a sense of humor. We don't often see Jesus having a sense of humor when you watch the movies. But he does, and he's funny. But there's another dimension of his humanness that comes through here. Jesus is a friend. See, when we think of Jesus, oftentimes we really, in our minds, tend to remove him. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And so he's this transcendent God. And because he's perfect, he's not exactly like us. Even though we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, we don't believe it. Really. Because we don't quite see him as human like us. 
And yet, as he would clearly state in the upper room with his apostles, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because you know what I'm about. And if you really love me, knowing what I'm about, you're going to follow me, you're going to keep my commandments. You're my friends. But see, we see that here already. There's an understanding that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are also special to Jesus. And there's a special relationship. And even when Martha and Mary send for Jesus, they say in the message, the one whom you love is ill. Please come. They don't even have to go further than that. Even though John thinks of himself as the beloved disciple, so do Mary, Martha, and Lazarus think of themselves as special, as special friends, as someone Jesus dearly loves, because that's the way Jesus related to people. And people knew it. He wasn't removed. He wasn't aloof. He wasn't, as you often think of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and some of the religious leaders of our own day. He was personal. He was compassionate. He loved. And so he was a friend. He was human. He embraced people and he embraced them. And that's why everyone was so perplexed, if you know the story. They send for Jesus. They say, your friend who you really love and you love us too, we want you to come because he's really sick. And we're told Jesus waits two additional days after that. And I'm sure the people that sent for him are saying, this doesn't make sense. And the apostles are saying, we don't get this. And when he arrives... Martha and then Mary say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And then the crowds start gossiping. You know, if he really cared like he said he did, if he's really going to be a friend, where was he? He could have saved him. He healed a man that was born blind. What's that about if he's really a friend? See, the reality, as much as people said they loved Jesus, they trusted him. As much as people say they love God and they trust him. They don't always want to trust his ways. We want to trust God as, as long as God does it our way. But in Isaiah, you have to hold on to these verses. Isaiah 55 8 and 9. For my ways are not your ways, says the Lord, and my thoughts, your thoughts. For my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts, says the Lord. You have to know that. And in the, Ro and in the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not ours, his. 
But see, we want God according to our purpose. God, you're there to serve me, right? You do it my way, right? You don't. We got a problem here. See, but then who's God? If I'm always calling the shots, who's God? I'm God. Instead of trusting Him. Instead of loving Him according to His purpose that He has for me. And His ways are beyond my ways. See, because His love, He had something so much more, so much greater in, in, in mind for Martha and Mary. They couldn't conceive of it. But there's a risk involved. And there's pain involved. And that's what was going on. And so let's get to Jesus waiting first. And here's the picture and here's the timetable. They send for Jesus. The day that they sent for Jesus, most likely, if you follow the timetable, you have to read the whole chapter. John chapter 11. There's a good chance that not long after they sent for Jesus, he died. And so if Jesus had come right away, he was already dead. You have to know that. Because what the scripture says in John 11 is he waited two additional days. So now how many days do you have? Three days. And then you've got a day of travel. In the Jewish mindset, that's four days. So Lazarus was dead for four days. And that's what we get at the end of the passage in our scripture. We'll get to that. See, because for the Jewish mindset, if he was just dead a few hours or a day, it's not the same as what was going on here. See, because we saw in the Old Testament that Elisha raised the widow's child that day. And if you see in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raised a widow's child that day. And if you look at Luke chapter 8, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter that day, or maybe the next day. It almost doesn't matter. See, for the Jewish mindset, the spirit hovers around the body for a day or two. And then on the third day, the spirit leaves, which is why it's significant that Jesus was raised on the third day because he was really dead. You need to understand that. That's why Jesus had to remain in the tomb until the third day. Now, you get to Lazarus, a day that he's that he's there, two days Jesus waits, a day he comes, four days he's dead. What the scriptures are telling you is Lazarus is really, really dead. So there's no chance of a resurrection. No chance of reviving him, of his spirit coming back into the body. That's what's being told here. So any of the superstitions of the Jews is gone. Which is why when Jesus shows up, first Martha says... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, you just need to trust me because you're going to see something. Don't you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? And, and she says, I know he's going to raise on the last day. In other words, when everybody raises the second coming, because he had probably already taught that in their home. And Jesus is saying, no, something else is going to happen here. You're going to see the glory of God. And then the same thing happens with Mary. 
Same dialogue. It's almost like they agreed on it. You know, if Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. Where is he? He didn't do it our way. And they question his love. At least somewhat. So that's the first part of the story. And then we get to the point of Jesus walking to the tomb with them. And on the way and when he gets there, he has a tremendous emotional reaction. But the scriptures literally say, deep within him, his bowels. He wept. This version says he began to weep. He wept. I don't know how many of you, as an adult, probably most of you, if not all of you, have experienced weeping. It's only happened to me a few times in my adult life. I've cried a number of times. I tend to be what you call a leaker. You know, I just leak a little bit now and then, you know, little tears coming down. Like our grandson and daughter and son-in-law left Friday evening, actually the wee hours of Saturday morning, and like just little tears were forming there, you know, like leaking. But weeping, where you're literally crying from your bowels, it's a deep within kind of crying. I've only experienced a few times. And see, some of you might be thinking that he did it because Lazarus had died. And if that's what you're thinking, you're missing it. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Because before the apostles and Jesus left, Jesus said, he's only fallen asleep. And they said, well, if he's just fallen asleep, we don't need to go there. He'll wake up. He already told them he's going to raise him from the dead. He told Mary and Martha he's going to raise him from the dead. He already told them. The reason I believe Jesus is weeping is because he's empathizing with Martha and Mary. The fact that they misunderstand him. That they don't fully trust him. There's a tremendous amount of pain there. That he is feeling for them. Because of their pain and their loss and their grief. That that's the kind of God that we worship. That he is in the midst of us in our pain, in our sorrow, in our struggle, in our grief. He understands. And they don't understand him. You know, for those of you that have had children, particularly teenagers, there are times when you correct them or discipline them, they don't understand. But you love them because you want something better for them. 
And so sometimes you take a hard stand or you do difficult things. That's what Jesus did. I remember when I grounded Daniel for the summer, one summer. Meredith didn't get what I was doing. But now he's in special forces. Because that's what I sensed the Lord was saying he needed. And we have a great relationship. See, sometimes what we have in mind, our children won't understand. And that's what Jesus was doing for Martha and Mary and even Lazarus. What he had in mind for them because he loved them so much. They couldn't fully comprehend until it was accomplished. And that's sometimes the way it is with the Lord because His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. Doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, just to show you how much Martha didn't believe, they get to the tomb. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. And Martha says, Jesus, don't do that. Did you catch the words? There's going to be a stench. I love the King James Version here. After four days, he stinketh. I love that. In other words, he's really dead. And there's really going to be a smell. and There's nothing we can do. Why the heck would you open that thing? Because you're about to see the glory of God. And Jesus raises him from the dead. So there's no doubt. Jesus has the power over sin and over death. And Jesus says, unbind him. But you need to understand, the physical unbinding, the taking off of the cloth. That's secondary to what's already happened. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Notice the resurrection chapter. When this perishable body puts on the imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The unbinding has already been taken place. Because they already understood the forgiveness of sin. The power of God's grace and mercy. They already understood, because he was raised from the dead, that because of that, God has power over life itself. Power over death. And that the taking off of the cloth is almost like a sacramental act saying, this is what God is capable of. And I held this off for you so that you would understand the power of God. I loved you so much I was willing to risk 
for you. I was willing to have you misunderstand me so that you would understand in the long run. You would experience in the long run the power and the glory of God. See, if we always get it our way, we will never understand. Because it's always about us. God wants to teach us about what real faith is and what real hope is. We live in a world that doesn't understand real hope. And that's why depression and suicide are epidemic. That's why people are grasping onto this world in greed and entitlement. Instead of trusting Him. Let me read to you what Paul writes. First in First Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. See, it's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to admit we have struggles and pain and and sorrow. That we don't have it all together, that we have sin and temptation. That's why Jesus came. But we have hope because we have faith. When Paul writes to the Ephesians in the context of writing about the body of Christ, the church, in Ephesians 4, he says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope in God's call to us. One hope. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only hope because he brings us through this life to eternal life. He's the one hope. In a world that has all kinds of different ideas, but no real hope. You know, a passage that's often read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, the the love passage, ends with, And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We are to abide in faith, live in it. We are to abide in hope. When it seems like the circumstances around us are hopeless, we turn to the one hope and hold on to that hope. Because he is resurrection and he is life. He is power and strength. He sent his Holy Spirit To help us know we are not alone. And we will live in His love now and for all eternity. And we can trust Him. We can trust Him. But it doesn't mean it's easy to get there. Which is why Paul writes in Romans. Therefore, since we are justified... By faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That's what we have. God's love poured into our hearts that we then bring to others. And we bring hope because we live in his faith, we live in his hope, and we live in his love. You know, it's interesting. If you go on to John 12... The religious leaders are so angry that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They plot to kill Jesus instead of saying, gee, maybe he is the Messiah. And they plot to kill Lazarus. Go figure, he just raised him from the dead. But it makes the point, Lazarus is going to die again physically. Just like we are. But I guarantee you, Lazarus no longer fears death. And neither does Martha and neither does Mary because of what Jesus did for them. Risking because of his love. This week we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And I know some of you are going through struggles and challenges. Maybe threats to your health, challenges in your family. Some pain that you're carrying. And we're coming up on a day that we're supposed to be thankful. You don't have to be thankful for your circumstances. But I guarantee you, you can be thankful in your circumstances. Because of the hope. That we have in Jesus Christ. And the love. That's been poured into our hearts. Because of the cross. And the resurrection. He is the resurrection. And the life. Let us pray. God, in a world often filled with struggles and pain and despair and depression and sometimes hopelessness, because of your son, Jesus, we have hope for those who trust in you, even amidst our suffering and our grief, to know the hope. It carries us through because your love has been poured out for us and in us through the cross of your son, Jesus, who died for our sin, died for our brokenness, defeated the power of sin and death and rose again that we might know. Lord God, as we come to remember this wonderful gift of Lazarus being raised from the dead. 
And as he knew from that moment on, no fear, but trust in you. Help us to know and to trust in you. And especially this week, to be thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.